What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. My guest today is Joshua Benaim, a US-based real estate developer, uh, the founder of Aria Development Group. Uh, by the way, I like the opera reference there. And uh, author of a brand new book on this exciting real estate sector. The book is called Real Estate, A Love Story. Joshua, welcome. It's uh, it's 2.30 here in the afternoon in Thank Dublin, you. Ireland. Whereabouts are you calling us from? And what more importantly, what time of the morning is it there? Oh, I'm here in New York City. I'm looking out at Union Square. Wonderful. I'd show you. I could give you the... I, I don't know if you can see out there. There's... <laughs> Oh, wow. Lovely. Yeah. It's a sunny Union day Square. here in New York City. Um, I, can, I can see the Empire State Building. <laughs> yes. We're making our, our New York style comeback. Yeah, yeah. Better great. late than never. Uh, but we're, um, and uh, it's, it's about 930 in the morning. And uh, greetings. Uh, <laughs> greetings. Greetings from uh, Ireland. Across the ocean. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be on uh, with you today, uh, Joshua. And I just... Normally, I have a, a format that I go through for my for my audience, just to give a bit of context um, for people who don't know who you are. Could you just share a little bit of your backstory and just the early years and what kind of brought you into the real estate sector to begin with? Sure. Um, well, I, it's 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 a bit eclectic, and I've I've tried pretty much every other job, so that's sort of how I found my way into real estate. I, I basically. I spent time working in finance. I spent time singing opera around the world, hence the name Aria, which was um, how I, I started the company. That was, you know, the passion for, I wanted to put the same kind of passion in, that I found in music into our business. Nice. And, you know, that, that last 10, 12 years of trying to, trying to do that has been a journey that, you know, a journey of discovery and uh, learning and, you know, making mistakes, trying again and adjusting. But uh, I, I, I think I learned an enormous amount of real estate um, from my uncles uh, so my, and my grandfather. Uh, my, on my mom's side, uh, my grandfather basically came to this country um, when he, in his 20s on a boat. It took him 113 days to get here. Whoa. And he, he, he couldn't cross the Atlantic because there were uh, submarines. Uh, it, this was in 1941. And so he, he went across the Pacific. And, oh, wow. and came Take to the long, uh, the long way <laughs> he around. took the long route and came to um, San Pedro, California, and then to New York City, um, where he he came to uh, to chauffeur his brother on his honeymoon, <laughs> and he could drive, so he he was able to uh, take them on their honeymoon to Niagara Falls, and then he he was an antiques man, so he he kind of he would unpack and repack antiques, and basically, and he just he got into real estate in New York City, kind of with the eye of an, you know, an antiquarian in a way and finding old buildings and interesting old situations that weren't quite right. And I think a lot of his values, his kind of old world way of looking at things were part of what inspired me to, to, to do real estate. And I got a more concrete chance to work with my uncles on a development in lower Manhattan uh, not too long after September 11th. Okay. Um, and so I was singing opera traveling around the United States to different towns and, uh, and performing not quite in the big leagues at that time and sort of uh, regionally. And then uh, there was an opportunity to work on developing this building. So I, I came back to New York to, to help on this project. 
on William Street that ended up becoming uh, well. It, it, there's a there's a lot more uh, story because that that project went haywire and got you know very interesting, and then we ended up ultimately selling it. But it, it wasn't before I'd pretty much gotten hooked on the deal, hooked on the business. It's quite interesting when you go into that. I mean, from going from the opera to to kind of jumping into a real estate deal. Are there many parallels between the two businesses <laughs> or the, the two kind yes. of interests? Believe it or not, there are. And I think I would not have had the guts to, I, 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 I came, I'm so much more conservative, cautious. I'm not a big risk taker. I'm not a gunslinger. I was scared to death, basically. I, you know, I wanted to have a stable career and, I, and I, I wasn't sure that I could do entrepreneurship or that that would be something that would really um, you know, be suited to what I, what I was doing. So what opera did is basically you stand out there on stage, you're totally vulnerable, you pour your guts out. People either love it or they hate it. I mean, if they love it, they're applauding, they're, they're cheering, whatever. If they hate it, they don't say anything. But then in the next morning you read in the newspaper, <laughs> you know, this yeah. was lousy. <laughs> you, this they hated you blew it. it. <laughs> um, and so uh, it was kind of a palpable risk that I had never felt like I'd worked a little bit on Wall Street for a couple of years. I, 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 the, the opera world, it's, but it's also a world where you're deeply connected to your emotions. You're deeply connected to trying to communicate something. And I kind of feel like I want my buildings to communicate something. I want them to mean something to the people that are using them. And in, in a sense, what I've over time come to discover is that if you can make people happy without a whole lot of money, which is what opera is great at, you know, we, yeah. were, we were doing that. You know, when I was singing opera there, I remember one occasion I was in a, a singing in Rome and we were staying in Domus Pacis, which was almost like a monastery outside Rome. And I was in a tiny room, you know, it, it, was, it was white walls, a cross and two cots sharing with a friend. But you know what? We were singing Rossini. It was one of the best times of my life. They had every morning, we, we ate communally, um, you know, big bowl of pasta. And so what I realized when I started developing apartments, because that's really my trade is, is, is building homes and apartments in cities. It doesn't take much if you give people the right details and the right uh, essentials, with, but you, you have to infuse it with meaning. Somehow it had, there has to be a taste of beauty, a taste of, of, of art, a taste of friendship, romance. Those things don't have to cost a gazillion dollars. And that to me is, is, is part of the art of, of real estate is making people happy on a budget that they can afford uh that so finding the that's that's kind of our secret sauce <laughs> yeah that's a great uh, way to describe it actually yeah it's that sort of magic formula that kind of pulls all the pieces together my my background is architecture so i kind of understand exactly what you're getting at and um you obviously you've established your own firm Be before that i mean where did you kind of um learn your trade was it you mentioned you were working on wall street but did you do any other real estate experience working for other firms or anything oh sure i i worked i, I started out in um credit suisse first boston i worked for two three years there uh, i spent some time working for my uncles trying to develop a project in lower manhattan and that was um that was an incredible training uh and i i had to run i also had to renovate a lobby this is not a very big undertaking it's just a lobby of a building but basically you have a multinational crew. The, the contractor was French. The laborers were from Eastern Europe or South America. Nobody spoke the same language. I remember I faxed, I wanted to put a beautiful new door. So I sent a fax of the, the, the door design to the contractor who sent it to the door guy. 
Of course, as I faxed it, you know how faxes used to sort of. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it sort of created a sway kind of pattern. Yeah. It, it created a sway pattern. <laughs> and so the door didn't fit even remotely. You know, it, it was thrown off to scale completely. So it was the architect's nightmare. <laughs> so wow. basically, um, I, so I learned a bit, a bit during that. And then I, I kind of, I was honestly, I, I was afraid to dive into this thing. I went to business school. I did Harvard Business School for two years, continued to try to build my skill base because I, and then I worked for three years after that at a group called Square Mile Capital that uh, was investing in joint ventures, complex equity investment, and a little more on the investment side, a little less on the development side. And I got to do a couple of interesting deals, one of which was in Long Island City, which is this, has always been an up-and-coming neighborhood, but it never had really up-and-come even when I got there, it, 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 there was a big moment in the 80s and they built a tall office building and then nothing for 20 years. Okay. The, so Bloomberg rezoned this area and, and, and we got the opportunity to go into what had been a urban renewal municipal five acre garage that was being used as a flea market. Wow. So this is something that's literally five minutes from Midtown Manhattan, but it was an empty wasteland. Wow. And mm-hmm. We were what I what I, it was actually where the prison bus dropped off, which is the bus that takes you up to the up to the prison. So it would always be dumping and people would be so it, would, it was the most sad scene in New York City. If, if you want to go somewhere to just feel human misery and understand what go there what can happen. You, you, you used to go there. OK, believe it or not. Now there are 30 brand new buildings in that neighborhood because Bloomberg kicked it off with the one project that I got to work on in my old firm. And once that first one went up and the garage came down, that was sucking up all of the air in the neighborhood. It, it really, that neighborhood has, has truly transformed. And then the saga continued when Amazon was going to come to that neighborhood. I remember hearing then, about that. Yeah. And then it, 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 it actually, some of our um, politicians in their wisdom decided to blow that deal up. The company didn't necessarily um, deport themselves with the most grace yeah. in terms of how they how they it's dealt like a with beauty, some of the, beauty contest for all the cities, a, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a bit of a. It was not. I don't think it was the most tasteful maneuver. They they made all the cities compete, um, and then then Long Island City won. But then uh, there were a few people that decided that it wasn't a good idea, and uh, they they didn't do the work that needed to be done in terms of going to meet with the neighbors, sitting down with people in the projects nearby, and you know. Um, it seemed a bit arrogant, all right, the way they went about it. Was, it was very arrogant, and, and there was a talk of that they needed a helicopter pad, and they weren't going to ride the subways with everybody else. And that, <laughs> that doesn't go over too well. And I think and, yeah, yeah. you learn over this business that you have to be one part politician, one part architect, one part... Uh, diplomat. You know, <laughs> diplomat. And it, it, it's... But it really teaches you a lot about people. It does, so, for sure. Uh, yeah, that's... That's how and, we grow. And so you, you must, yeah, you've learned a lot on that project for sure. Um, I mean, was that the was that the kind of project that gave you the change, the shift in mindset to kind of take on the risk of starting your own firm? Or like what was the shift in mindset that sort of drove you to starting your own firm? Well, I think it it was more on the investment side, to be to be totally honest. Um, I didn't know if that would succeed. When New York in 2008, when we closed that deal, New York was in free fall. On its knees, and yeah. and that that building was leased to New York City, which was an investment grade credit. So we thought, <laughs> but at that particular moment when all the banks were crashing, this was October of 08. Wow, it wasn't 
quite clear uh, what would you know if what would happen. So, but in fact, what what kind of drove me to do it was at the very end of 08, I went to look at a project that was in Florida for a big mall where the lender was selling it at a huge discount, and uh, it was just a terrific property with a cinema, Whole Foods, the whole works. It was weirdly designed, so I have to say it was a little bit. But all the tenants were flying out, and so I thought, wow, if this is this is a really interesting opportunity. What convinced me was a value investment philosophy and 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 how I how I try to avoid risk, which I learned over over a number of years. But basically, my approach to starting Aria was to marry a value investment philosophy, which we can go into in greater depth. But not finding things that are mispriced, misunderstood, undermanaged, damaged, uh, rent controlled, complex and turning them into liquid, beautiful properties. And also trying to take the best of what I'd learned from my uncle, kind of a traditional real estate ethos where you shake hands with somebody and that's a the, deal. The deal is and, done, yeah. And so I, that, was my, that was my idealistic view. But because of that philosophy, basically I had seen the safest deals who did the worst in a sense, because the price was so high. So what, what, what really stuck with me was that if you could somehow pay a lower price, you're, you're eliminating a substantial portion of the risk. It's very hard to do. And, I, and I've tried for 10, 15, it's, it's really incredibly difficult. So, and, and still you make tons of mistakes. But what, what, what convinced me that I could try was, and I don't like risk. I just hate it. You know, I really don't like it. <laughs> this last year has been hell. Yeah, but it's been tough. Basically, you know, Basically, what convinced me was if you find some way to get into something at a slightly, and I'll give you a bunch of examples of different things we've done, but then even if you screw up, you're okay. And that's, that's what- Mitigate um, the risk, yeah. Mitigate the risk. That was what was called the margin of safety by uh, Seth Klarman, who wrote a book that I love, which is called Margin of Safety. And basically, he's saying, Make it if you can find some way to see something others don't and buy things right, then then you can be the biggest idiot or even the world just stays the way it is and you're still okay. And that that convinced me that I could start a company and that was the philosophy that has guided me. I've certainly not always stayed as, as true as I would like. I've gotten carried away on certain things I've, and then I've I've in some cases blown it. Uh, you know, I tried to renovate a building by myself with no, you know, and 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 totally blew it. But because of the location and the the, the value that was created by the buy, in some cases, you can afford that, to that, make that mitigated the risk. That, right. that 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 was that's been kind of my watchword. It sounds like a good. It sounds like a good strategy because definitely, if you buy, I mean, it's funny. I was chatting with some people about this the other evening, and we were talking about, you know, if you buy a property that doesn't have a tenant, you can be at at risk of sitting there trying desperately to find that tenant for a long time. But if you buy it at a fraction of its of its kind of true value, or if it's, you know, if the market has fallen in such a way that you're able to buy it below cost of construction or something like that. That margin yes. of safety that you've got there gives you a whole load of um, room to maneuver. And, uh, you know, it, even if you're sitting there for a year or two, you've still got the ability to kind of pull a rabbit out of the hat. Yes, I think vacancy is one of the, it's a double-edged sword, uh, but it's one of the best, if in the right hands, that's, that's an incredible strategy. I, I, and I've seen it work both ways. 
And, but I think that's where you can, that those are the kind of situations where you can make money without taking big risk. Um, I'll give you an example. We, we recently, a few years ago, we bought a 1960s office building, completely vacant, 400,000 square feet, totally obsolete. Wow. Nobody really wanted it. It was a white elephant. We are in the midst of leasing 338 apartments. We turned it into 338 apartments. We, one of the things I've become really specialized in and love is turning uh, reuse of old buildings, office or, or hotel into apartments. Conversion, so yeah. nice. we, we converted the, this and, and you don't have the risk of excavation. You don't have the risk of uh, what's on, you know, subsurface conditions, water, all the different things that you have. We were able to buy it for, you know, it, it had been a countrywide financial loan in 2006 for 43 million. And then we got it for nine. Wow. And so the price, if, if you, what I, what, what to me, it shows that, that at the time it was fully leased by the government. So if you buy something that's priced to perfection, everything has to go right. And uh, that's a very rare occurrence. I mean, as we know in this business, no, no, nothing, you know, yeah. nothing, rarely does everything go right. There, there are those few moments in a career when things go right. And then you're like, thank you. I, I <laughs> didn't, you uh, yes, exactly. I basically, but usually what it means is that you've done an enormous amount of hard work that nobody appreciates. Yeah. <laughs> you've worked your ass off and you've basically gotten, you position things so that things can go right. Yeah, um, it looks. There's a funny line. Uh, I was going to say the funny line in, in a Rossini opera, which basically where he's joking around and he says, basically, look, the cheese just fell on the macaroni. <laughs> How often does the cheese fall on the macaroni? <laughs> Usually you've been working on the bowl. You put it there. It's been three, four years. You do nothing. And then finally you put it there. And then the, suddenly the macaroni falls down and the, right on the, the cheese falls right on the macaroni. Perfect. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like the, the people that think that you're, you're an overnight success, but you've like spent the last 10 years working on it. Like. <laughs> right. Um, it's, it's, it's true. In terms of, um, I mean, that, that's fascinating that you got it for nine million. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, in like specifically in, in that particular deal, like, did you have to compete with other people on that, or did you just, you know, happen to ferret out that deal? In that one, we did not. Uh, we we bought it in a privately negotiated transaction from someone who had bought the the, the note. There were a bunch of other complexities with that deal. Uh, th there was a parking problem. There was a, a lease which required somebody to pay an enormous amount for parking, but maybe it, it could or could not be terminated in bankruptcy. There were all sorts of complexities, and, and often those complexities swirl around, you know, sort of upside down capital structures like that. Um, we that one we were able to we were able to get through a, just through a privately negotiated transaction. In other cases. And, and as increasingly, when everything has become somewhat competed, the beauty is that there's often a herd mentality, and many people are afraid to do something different yeah. um, from from what the, the the conventional wisdom is. Even in marketed situations, people aren't always cognizant of, of what's there. I, I think that, but, but when you're looking at corporate divestitures, you know, I, I don't know, I, 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 my um, I have a cousin Greg who's who's a brilliant. Uh, guy and who who bought a gigantic campus in Stamford, Connecticut, outside, um, right on the highway, fully vacant, almost a million square feet. Wow! And um, you know he 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 bought it for peanuts, but everyone was like, "What what what the hell are you gonna do with this thing?" And you know, it, it, the, the basically industrial and flex space. Fifteen years ago, before Amazon and the whole thing, it was it was kind of 
who the hell is building, you know, factories in, in Northeastern United States, high cost areas. Yeah. So he bought it and then he figured out how to put Sony there. And then there was all sorts of Sony music. And then he got um, Chelsea Piers, which is a big sports and athletic complex to come take a bunch of the space indoor and outdoor with basketball, soccer. Um, and, and it worked. The flip side of that is the worst deal I ever did, uh, which was at my old company, for which I apologize to everyone involved, <laughs> basically, uh, years ago, uh, we bought another 400,000 square foot industrial property in New Jersey for what seemed like peanuts. I mean, it was, it was a, originally, I, I want to say it was $6 million purchase, 400,000 square feet of building, ex- excellent electrical, water. It, it had been a heavy industrial site. Right. Um, with, with the attendant environmental nightmare, basically. But, you know, you look, drive up. This is a classic American big red brick building, Lenox, China. I don't know if that company, it's, they made all sorts of very famous China for presidents and different things over the years, silver and the big American flag waving on the front lawn. And you drive up. This is, this thing is a, this is a great thing. We, you know, somebody's going to want this. But it turned out that it was kind of, no, it, first of all, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere. Right. Uh, it wasn't on the crossroads of major highways. It was in southern New Jersey near Atlantic City and some old casinos. And there was a shipbuilding company that wanted to buy it and pay us an extra million dollars for the property that we should have taken it. Two brothers that, that built ships. And if they wanted to build ships in this thing, it would have been perfect. It was gigantic. Um, then there was a tuna fish company. And they, they said, well, there's all this water. We had, you know, because of the China manufacturing, there was, there was insane rail connection and everything. And they couldn't do it. They, nobody could make it work. And in the end, it was sort of, a, we, we sold it. It was a, sort of a disaster. Okay. I wonder now with Amazon putting a lot of heat on, on industrial property, if even some of these farther flung warehouses are probably, maybe now they're worth a lot of money. We, we probably blew it. But it, it's a case... Case in point that vacancy can be your friend. Value investment, it's it, it's it can really be your friend. It can also be a trap if you if you don't look carefully. Yeah. So. If you're stuck with the property, it's a disaster. But if you have like a good roster of of tenants and people that you have connections with who you can kind of put into that, you can you can kind of double or treble your money very easily. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, that's the some of the things that I, I like to kind of get into. Um in terms of you know, behaviors, uh, you know, this is such a slick cyclical market. Um, you know, there's ups and downs and there's all that. And over the years I've, I've had my own challenges. I mean, do you have any strategies for, you know, the resilience that you require to kind of deal with the stress and, and all that kind of stuff over the years that you've, that, well, for example, taking that deal, the fact that it turned into a disaster, um, I mean, there's a lot of stress that comes with that. Have you developed any kind of strategies around that kind of stress management? Eating, <laughs> singing <laughs> opera, I suppose. <laughs> singing opera, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, Italian love songs, Irish melodies. It, I, I mean, I, I, I love all of it. And basically, when you're singing, you're also breathing. Right. So it's much more athletic than, than it looks. So, and you're essentially meditating with music when you, because your, your, your lungs are, are pumping. So, I, I love I love music. That that's really my my escape, and uh, 
it's 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 hard to practice depends where you live with what the neighbors are like if they <laughs> if they don't mind a little bit of uh noise here and there i i think yeah i i, I think uh having somewhat of a philosophical outlook on things is is is, is sort of necessary but I, I i still advocate putting your whole self into your work because otherwise what's the point <laughs> you know what i mean basically i i think that and then and then when it goes bad it, you 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 hurt the worst you have to but own it's, it's, yeah. you got to own it i think you got to whatever part of the business you're really focused on i think it's worth cultivating the others if you're working on the part that only uses your brain spend some time working with your hands renovate something help fix something build something put bricks down if you're working only with your hands work on the creative side the architectural design part the thing you, you got to put your brain your heart into these relationships and into your work i think it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all and uh and i think it goes true for business too if you don't if you don't put your passion into it um you're you're not only are you missing out but everyone around you is 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 missing out on whatever it is that you may have to offer to to this world your your book um real estate a love story um i'm curious you know what the, with a title like that give us some of the the inspiration behind writing this book well it started basically um as something i started writing down on hotel napkins when i was traveling a lot for work and uh, stationery and the you know, um, and I, it, I, it started pouring out of, at first I thought I was writing a primer on how to invest in real estate. So I thought I would write kind of a, an investment book on purely an investment book on just, this is, here's how you do it. Here's my, this is how I do it. I, I, I look for the marriage of value investment and here are my seven value investment strategies with traditional real estate and its values of location, scarcity, and beauty. And that, 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 that's been my motto as starting this company. And that is what the book, that's at the center of the book. And right. all of that information and strategic thinking is still in the book, but it's all illustrated with stories as we've been discussing, because basically uh, all the early readers said, you know, it's great. I, I, I love the textbook part, but would you please just tell more of the story so we understand what the hell you're talking about and, it, and it's more interesting to read? So, so it, it's, it's, it ended up being four parts. The first part, which is kind of the love story is, is my own journey in real estate and how I learned how to do this, how I learned, um, how I learned really the different values and, and thought processes that, that make real estate interesting to me, which is to me a world of ideas and relationships. And uh, it's, I think it's one of the more joyful and colorful and elaborate businesses to be in with a lot of history, a lot of tradition. And so that, so that's part one. Part two is really the value investment strategies. There's a chapter on vacancy. There's a chapter on risk. There's a chapter on honor. There's that chapter, all the different components. Part three is as my career has evolved, I've come to really love development and how to, how to create something that makes people happy for not a lot of money. And that's really the art of real estate development, which is part three. And then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I added this part four, which is essentially what I think cities need to 
make a full comeback and, and build back better. And that's, so that's in a nutshell, the terrain that's covered by this. this that's book. very interesting. I, I, maybe we'll just delve into that because I've been looking at the impact of COVID-19 myself and uh, I, I run a business park here in, in Dublin. And for the most part, we would, I would say we've been about 95%, you know, empty the, the business park. I mean, the, the units are not sure. vacant, but they're just not in use at the moment. Everyone's working from home. And, um, and it makes me wonder about the the future of the office. And, you know, a lot of people are talking about the move to work from home and stuff, which I don't entirely buy myself because I do think that there's an energy from being in a, in a, in a building together with your colleagues. And there's a, there's a culture that develops around, you know, and a, and a camaraderie and stuff. But what are your views on, 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 the, on the direction that, you know, the workplace is going in, in that regard? I, I think it's I, I I think it's um, basically it will remain essential because for the very point that you described that there's no way to train and mentor new new young people and talent without seeing them it, it it's I can get by some of the old hands are good at doing this and it's okay but how do you how do you instill the thinking the, uh, the the approach, if, if you can't sit and sort of talk to people and, and, and engage and build those relationships, many of us are, are drafting off of relationships that we've known for 10, 20, 30 years, whereas um, some of the new folks don't, don't, don't have that benefit. So uh, I also think that people will want to congregate in cities because that's where you fall in love and, you know, you, it's, it's, it, you meet people, you build your career. So I, I believe those things remain. On the other hand, I think that having worked in a hell of a lot of offices over my life, many of them leave a lot to be desired. And they're, they're a lot, I think that the ops, basically the soulless, bone crushing, plug yourself into a computer and sit there with no light, no natural light, no beauty, no cafe, no, no friendship. What makes work really stimulating and interesting? Meeting people, friendship, relationships, new ideas, thoughts, taking a walk. Some of the best deals are made, you know, I don't know, out in the woods. Spontaneously, yeah. Ski trip, having a beer. Uh, that, that's where interesting stuff often happens. So my, my view is that offices, cities more generally, but at a minimum, offices need to... Um, really adapt and evolve and be somewhere compelling. It's got to have, I think it has to have more hospitality for sure. Involvement, more residential, more, more fun. Um, Experiential. I think, isn't that it? hundred percent. It has to be compelling for someone to be there. I think it has to have a little bit of uh, light, a little bit of nature. If you can bring it into the space somehow in some creative ways, uh, room for collaboration people need coffee and you know is there a place to sort of I, I i believe that those and some some offices won't necessarily make it if they weren't adapted for that either their location or or the bones cannot cannot adapt and and hopefully we'll turn some of those into apartments and then you know and in my vision people will live closer to work when if if that happens, then there'll be more houses where people could even walk to work or or be really close. 
Yeah, it's interesting. If 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 you look at um, cities like Singapore, for example, they have introduced kind of layers where the city is kind of commercial on the on the on the road level, but then they put the apartments and stuff directly above. So you're into a situation where people live and work in the same kind of block in the same area that they, so they work in the same place as they kind of basically sleep, and uh, it it beats this kind of long commutes and stuff where you know there's a city area that is for offices and then there's another area that is for so it does seem like to kind of integrate work and life together is a better way than do it to do it than to expect people to to sit put in their home and not have to commute at all because just because we have you know the digital technology now we don't need to travel anymore technically that might be true but i think what you said there earlier is absolutely true if you speak to any architectural firm or engineering firm who bring recruit, you know, recruit graduates from, from the universities and stuff. Like it's very, very hard for them to train somebody up because you don't spend, you know, the training is not just sitting in front of them the way you and I are now sitting in front of each other on, on a screen. It's overhearing the difficult conversation that your boss has to have with a client who's, you know, angry about something or, or all of those things that you absorb through kind of osmosis just by being there, as opposed to, I want you to listen to this phone call now and I want you to write down what I say. That's not how it works. It's, it's more from just being exposed. I, I, I think that's the, that's the, that's the key. And how do we, um, that, that's sort of what makes cities so dynamic. And I think why they're so resilient and, uh, New York City feels very vibrant, although our, our office utilization rate is only finally now cracking, uh, sort of ticking back up and getting, um, and the subways still aren't quite where they where they were. Um, well, that's understandable. I, I think people are still worried about the Delta variant and things like that. Sure. No, no, it's, it's still, it, it's still a, a concern lingering in everyone's mind. Um, but I, I think that, that, that in some ways, if we can imagine more positive version of this future post COVID where we rethink some of these things that we were doing long commutes that maybe aren't so good for the kids, you know, or, the, or for the family or for, for people's life. Uh, maybe, it, maybe it's not necessary, or maybe it's a few days a week. Um, I think it, it, it becomes, more, I think a more hybrid solution, maybe just more humane for all of us, um, uh, as long as work actually gets done, which is yeah, another product, more complicated thing. But the but productivity yes, uh, side is important, all right. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, since since the lockdown started, I found myself going to work later. I mean, I, I would still leave the house to go to the office because I kind of find being in the office good. But rather than leaving first thing in the morning to get ahead of the rush hour. I would actually find myself leaving at you know nine thirty or something like that. So have breakfast with the family, enjoy time with your family, as opposed to being this ghost who's kind of gone at six in the morning and right. know, and arrive home just five minutes before they go to bed. You know, exhaustion, and, uh, collapse, and exhaustion. Yeah. That's it. I, exactly. I know that. I know that routine. Well, isn't it? I mean, it, it, to me, that's where there's some hope here because by forcing us to change our lives a little bit. Who knows? Maybe that that maybe I think those of us fortunate enough to be able to to to, to have kept the job and get through this, um, maybe maybe we can see things differently and 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 you know try try again this time <laughs> a little different. Yeah, maybe it'll be I think better. so. 
And and tell me this, Joshua, have has this experience caused you to start looking at the way you design your apartment buildings differently? Have, are you kind of introducing things that weren't previously there? That's very interesting. I, I would say yes and no. It, yes, in that the technological changes that have really been accelerated by COVID, many of these things were already underway. Um, package delivery, you know, uh, in this project that we did with the old office building, we had so much space. I tried to create the largest package room in North America because when you see how many packages, the throughput of packages that, you know, basically growing up in New York, our doorman was there in, in many cases in the building to, to keep you alive, you know, and keep the building safe. Now these guys are basically shipping, you know, okay, offload this one, but, you know, with hundreds of boxes a day. They're a handling so, agent, basically. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so we've become, so, I mean, that's a small detail, but I think um, we've tried to create work from home niches in some of our spaces without adding a ton of square feet so that people can, um, can get more work done, uh, broadband internet. We already were making outdoor recreation spaces on the rooftops and that's our, everyone loves that amenity with you put a chef's kitchen and some barbecues. Oh, I put nice. a pizza oven on one so people can make bread, pizza. That, that kind of, um, I, I think the, uh, there's basically one, the change that we've made, um, we were already making a lot of these changes and uh, we were already building mostly in walkable neighborhoods. So those are things that I think we were onto that I think hopefully now other, many others are, are sort of coming with us on that. Um, we've also expanded some of the geographies in, in which we've invested to smaller cities that people are really loving. Um, so it, people realize that you can have a nice cup of coffee and make friends and do your work and, you know, go, go out to a show or something also in Nashville or Charlotte, Miami, um, Kansas city, uh, you know, many, many other cities around the United States. And they're, they're seeing a bit of a Renaissance, the smaller cities. So we've made a number of investments in some adaptive reuse, historic buildings and, uh, and some ground up projects in these cities. So we're trying to bring a little bit of the ethos of we brought New York style apartments, small apartments, small but sexy, mind you. So it's definitely people love these apartments and nobody believes that they're small. They walk in and they think they're large. But in fact, if you look at it, nobody really lives in square feet. Uh, only, only, only architects and engineers <laughs> design in square feet but people actually live in space in the real world and they love these units so we're getting ferocious rents per square foot on these things or sales price per square foot we brought it to washington they said it was the most ridiculous idea who the hell would ever live in those things this is a genteel southern town with large apartments and uh and it, and then they went like hotcakes <laughs> and we did uh we did the same thing in miami and we've actually sold out a project this is a sale for sale product. We sold close to 400 units in the last two months wow. um, with smaller condominiums uh, that, that are based on a similar ethos of, you know, 
location, amenities, and really efficient but sexy floor plans with a bit of technology. And, and that now we had a near-death experience in the, in the COVID thing where everyone's saying, well, no, 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 no one's ever going to live in these apartments again. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, it's, it's who's going to live in cities? The city is dead. Um, people only want large suburban homes. I think, I mean, that is, a, I think it's created a bit of a bubble in our, in our economy that people, yes, do need suburban homes right now for, the, for this duration of the pandemic. But um, I think a lot of the younger folks got sick of living in their parents' basement and decided to, you know, <laughs> to the now that the economy's picked back up, they can get a good job. And now, um, now they're moving back. So I think our business plan um, will be vindicated, uh, you know, yet again. But good you know, news. that's what keeps it exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, Joshua, we're, we're nearing the end of our discussion today. I just wanted to ask you, I mean, looking back on your career, do you recognize any major shifts in your mindset where you've, you've done like a, a 180 degree change in direction as to where you thought this business was about? That's, that's really interesting. Um, I think it's, it's been more of a process of gradual growth. I think that over the last 10 years, I would say I went in as an investor and I came out as a developer. Right. Um, and it's in a sense that, uh, and, and now maybe I'll go back to being an investor. It's a lot more relaxing. You don't have to worry about, you, you have a lot less to, to, um, to but do. <laughs> the creativity of, you know, when you're investing, you're trying to buy it for less than it's worth. Um, that's gotten so difficult. And so it's still there, but it's difficult. Um, and when you're developing, you're trying to make it worth a lot more than it costs you. Mm. So it's sort of two sides of the same coin and it's different parts of your brain. You know, the, the investor is more the rational sort of structures, complex deals and structures and sort of numbers. And the developer is more the creative. Well, how do you look at this office building and see an apartment house? Left how do we, yeah. yeah, it's kind of, it's, I, I think that I've, uh, I've come to enjoy really, in the beginning, I was very risk averse and also very logical and rational, which I still am. I'm, I'm not, I haven't abandoned all that stuff, but I, I, I think the more you work in, in this and, and, and explore how you can create value by transformation of an asset, by changing parts of it, by really studying human nature and how can you make something what, you know, what kind of a closet? And I, the first time I did it, I thought, okay, everyone's going to be roommates. So I'll put as many bedrooms as possible on this floor plate of an old building. So I took, there were 10 bedrooms. I, I made 15 bedrooms on that each floor and lots of small two bedrooms. People were sharing roommates, the whole thing, but I sort of forgot about closets. You know what I, I, I mean? And some people like a closet. So we, 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 um, we learn and adapt, but each detail of, of the development or in, in the creation of amenities for an apartment building, what's going to, you know, we, we took that old office building. It had a glass atrium. And that was the former entrance that had been decommissioned. And so we thought, you know, what, this is a really special, the 60s office window design 
was not optimal. And so many of the units had very interesting shaped windows. And this one was all glass. So we thought, what, what if we turned it into a, some sort of a sunroom for, the, for all the tenants? And then I thought, well, what if we turned it into a Moroccan sunroom with <laughs> colorful tiles and, and lounge chairs and you know, sort of almost like a, a lounge? And you know what? During the pandemic, a couple got married in the Moroccan solarium <laughs> of, of this 1960s building. So to me, that, that's, success. that's, that's what, what more could you want, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you've done it. Um, and, to, and final question, uh, Joshua, uh, if you had the opportunity to whisper some words of advice into the ear of yourself as a, as a young 20-year-old, knowing now what you know, what, what guidance would you give yourself, your younger self? Oh, I, I, would, I think I would, I'd probably tell myself to go a little easier on myself. <laughs> I, think, I think I would say um, that you don't have to, be perfect, that it's okay to make mistakes. And uh, as long as you go in with a good heart and, and goodwill and your head is screwed on right, you don't have to, you don't have to be afraid. And, uh, you know, you can, you can go out there and do business and, and make things without, without fear and that you'll still be a good person. You'll still be loved. You'll still be, you know, you, what matters most in life are you know the, the things you leave behind friendships and 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 your creative output um, are worth fighting for and and one should go forth without without fear that sounds like great advice joshua thanks so much uh, for your time today just if people are looking Pleasure. to to pick up a copy of your book where where's the best place to find that sure well you can check it out on uh, realestatealovestory.com and it's for sale in lots of bookstores um, uh, online and, and in person. Okay. And uh, I'll put sure. a link in the, in the show notes. And if anyone wanted to, you know, uh, reach out or learn more about your, your company and stuff like that, what's the best way to, 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 to find you? Uh, I, I would say um, our, our website is ariadevelopmentgroup.com. And there's also arialiving.com, which is some of our, you know, aesthetic creations and more for a consumer standpoint. Mm, nice. um, and I'm also personally on LinkedIn and Instagram, uh, Joshua Benaim. I'll have a and look. happy yeah. to, you know, uh, happy to say hi and uh, help help encourage the next uh, generation of, of talent in, in our field. Great stuff. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Joshua. And uh, I wish you the best of luck with uh, selling your book and your apartments. It was a great pleasure. And I hope to see you in person. <laughs> One of these days. We'll do that. We'll do that for sure. We'll have a beer in somewhere in New York. Terrific. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is for you to leave a review or indeed share the episode out with someone you think may benefit from it. In the show notes, you will find links to the various things discussed today. And if you have any questions or topics you would like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you can reach out to me on social media using the handle Gavin J. Gallagher. And this includes my YouTube channel. Lastly, you can stay up to date with the various things I am working on by adding your name to my email list, which you will find over at gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. All right, folks, that's all for now. See you again next week. Mm -hmm.